Why don't I begin this morning by reading our text from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. And they were sitting and divided tongues, and they were filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would come um, by your Spirit and that you would uh, affect us. And, and In other words, you would move among us, that you would change us, that you would convert us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would empower us for ministry. Father, I pray that you would also uh, be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. And amen. Well, this morning, this is the ninth sermon in our series entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on Race and Ethnicity and Mission. And I've gotten lots of positive feedback, but if, you, if you've been sitting through this whole series, what I hope you've also noticed is that we're only barely scratching the surface. Like the, that the whole Bible addresses issues of race, ethnicity, and mission throughout. In fact, it's a major theme. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is is one of the biggest events in the church's history in that event is pentecost and the question of course you have to ask if the answer you have to understand is what is pentecost you know if you, you i don't know if you've ever seen like i'm sure current day when, when i was young jay leno right they do man on the street interviews and they ask people can you name the vice president and no one can name the vice president and you're like oh all those people are so dumb and well, if you walk through a, ch a church, any given church in the United States, especially Protestant churches, and said, so what is Pentecost? It would be interesting to hear people's answers to that question. I mean, Pentecost, let me tell you how important Pentecost is. Pentecost is as important as Easter. Did you know that? In other words, when Easter comes, it's like, all right, Easter's coming, pull all of our resources together, get flowers for mom, set up a photo booth, we've got to have everything ready, gift bags, coffee mugs, Easter. And then Pentecost comes 50 days later, and it's crickets. Why is that? How can Pentecost be as important as Easter, and yet completely unobserved for the most part in the United States, in the American Protestant church primarily? And some of you aren't going to like when I say this, but the answer is actually really simple. It's Mother's Day. Pentecost tends to happen around the same time as Mother's Day every year. And people don't want to risk the wrath of mothers, I guess. <laughs> You'll notice, we don't make... Yeah, 
if you're around here very much, you know I'm not a big fan of made-up holidays. I, I do like Father's Day quite a bit, but um, <laughs> the rest of them, I mean, it's, it's an important, Pentecostalism is, is infinitely important. It is as important as Easter because if you remember, it's the, it's the birthday of the visible church. It is also when the Holy Spirit is given to us. We read one part of the passage. Jesus spends basically John 13 through John 17 explaining, I'm not always going to be with you. You see, Jesus was a person. He had a physical body. He was, very, he was the Son of God, and he was God, but he had a physical body. Jesus has a physical body right now, which means Jesus can't be everywhere at the same time. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to be with my Father, and I'm sending the Spirit so the Spirit can be with you all. Pentecost is the day that that happened. And so it was the, it was the next thing in the history of redemption. Easter is important, but so is Jesus' ascension into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father because the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father also means that if anyone would ever bring any accusation against us, Jesus is right there. Let me talk to you about Tommy Allen. Uh, uh, taken care of. Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit is the one who not only converts us, the Holy Spirit's not only the one who comforts us, but the Holy Spirit is also the one that empowers us for ministry. So we're going to look at three things today when we uh, consider the power of Pentecost. We're going to look at, basically we're going to look at the power of Pentecost, we're going to look at the, the people at Pentecost, notice I have at there on purpose, and the preaching at Pentecost, because Pentecost in and of itself isn't the thing with power, it's what happens at Pentecost during that time. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit today. And it's interesting, if you, if you take churches, at least in the United States, and you take, put ends of the continuum, there's some churches who put so much emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit that they tend to neglect sound doctrine. On the other hand, there are churches that put so much emphasis on sound doctrine that they tend to neglect the Holy Spirit. Guess which one we are? So maybe I'll push you a little bit, but the fact is, the Holy Spirit, once we are converted, once, once Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit is responsible for everything that happens. If you're, if you're a Christian, it's because He opened your eyes. If, you're, if you persevere in the faith, it's because He did it. If things happen in the world, the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work. So we're looking at three things, the power, the people, and the preaching at Pentecost. Look first at the power of Pentecost, and to do that, we have to look first at a little bit of background, and if you remember that uh, the apostle, or not the apostle, but Luke the doctor wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And so if you read the book of Luke, Acts picks up right after it. Immediately after it, Luke ends, Acts picks up. And so here's what Jesus says at the end of Luke. He says to, to the disciples, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then it says he ascended, and then you pick up right in Luke, and I'm going to read to you verse 6 of chapter 1. It says, so when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So the book of Acts opens. Jesus tells the disciples, 
that you need to, to wait. My spirit's going to come upon you when the time is right. And then he ascends into heaven. And then what do they do right after that? They wait. <laughs> what else can you do? Now, they did have this little the, the issue of replacing Judas. Remember, Judas got put on the permanent disabled list uh, because of his betrayal and hanging himself. And a disciple named Matthias ultimately took his place. And then it says in verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So a couple things about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost isn't initially a Christian holiday. It's actually a, a Jewish holiday that, that we have, uh, have adopted. So Pentecost would, would have taken place 50 days after the Passover. So they celebrate the Passover. 50 days later is the Feast of Pentecost, right? Pente in Greek means 50. But it was also the Feast of the first fruits, and that's an important point here. Because what it means is whoever would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast would have been very devout. It would have cost them something. In, in other words, it was a feast where you were basically coming in order to bring your first fruits, among other things. Now, pro- even by that time, a lot of that would have just been money. But nonetheless, if you were coming to Jerusalem in order to participate in this feast, it was going to cost you something. So not only would you have to travel in a place where it's very dangerous to travel and and not very uh, pleasant, but it meant when you got there, it would also cost you something. And so the day of Pentecost was this Jewish feast, and it says they, in verse it says when they were together in one place. I don't want to go off on a, on a rabbit trail here, but a lot of debate is about who is they at this point. Remember earlier on, it says that Peter spoke to the 120 who were in the upper room. And I think it's just, it's a lot simpler than that. You know, and I learned this from my Renaissance drama professor at Florida State. That you, instead of having all these debates, just simply look at the text here. When I was at Florida State, I had a Renaissance drama professor who I think was crazy. He, the only way he would test us or quiz us is he would say, okay, turn to page you know, 750 of Paradise Lost, which is this huge epic poem, and he'd, say, he'd find the word he, and he would say, now you have five minutes to find the antecedent to that pronoun. If you don't know what that means, the antecedent to a pronoun, he, she, or it, means what is, what is to whom or what does he, she, or it refer and I realized that if I went to his office the day before, he would actually help you work through that. So I ended up making all A's on those quizzes, but I couldn't have done it by myself. Now, if you look at our text, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. Well, the verse right before that says, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So what, what, is the, what pronoun does he, they point back to? Probably just the 11 apostles that the 11 apostles were gathered together. There might have been other people around them, but at least the 11 apostles were together. They were the ones who had not just received the Holy Spirit like the rest of the believers there, but they would be empowered and be authorized to speak on behalf of Jesus. So it's at least the apostles. And the room where they are, most people think that they were actually at the temple at this point. In the temple around, it was big, and so they had all these big anterooms on the, on the upper floor where people could gather and fellowship and what have you. And so, so basically, they were, the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and then the Spirit comes with power. And there are three things that happen when the Spirit comes in power. The first thing we see is a rushing wind. Look at verse 2. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now all the three things that happen here are, are incredibly important to understand what is happening, but also sort of who is happening. When you go look through the whole Old Testament, when you look at the, the 
all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and, and through the rest of the Bible into the New Testament, there are two words used for wind. One is ruach, that's the Old Testament word, and the New Testament word is pneuma. And in the Old Testament, ruach is, is a synonym for both spirit and wind. In other, in other words, the same word is used for spirit as is used for wind, and the same is true in the New Testament. And so when you look at the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, it says, now the earth was formless and void, and it says, and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. That's ruach, that's wind. But it also means God's spirit was there. And so the fact that this wind, the first thing they hear is this mighty wind, signifies that God is there in his spirit. And God is there in his power. But it's even more than that, because in the Old Testament, the Spirit actually hovers over creation right before everything happens. In other words, the the Spirit attends to and facilitates creation. But we also see that the Spirit facilitates and attends to the the life-giving of Adam. And when you get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit facilitates and attends to recreation. In other words, you remember when, when the, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, unless you're recreated. In other words, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, the, the New Testament would say, and something, someone has to come and breathe life into us, some wind, some spirit. And so when they hear this rushing wind, all of these things are going on in their mind maybe, or maybe they're not. We get to look back and consider what's going on. So the Holy Spirit is there, and this is sign coming, so the recreation is about to happen. The beginning of the end of all things, right? That when, the Holy, when Jesus raises from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes and he starts recreating, that means that work of recreation is not going to end until it is complete. It doesn't always look like that when we look around us in the world, but one of the promises we have is that, in fact, it's what God is doing. The second thing we see there, it says, a mighty wind came, it says, verse 3, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, why is fire so important? If you look at the Old Testament, almost any time God showed up, he manifested himself in fire. So he shows up to Abraham, and he's going to make a covenant with him in Genesis 15. Abraham has a dream. How does God show himself? He's a pillar of fire going through these, these pieces. God wants to show himself to Moses, and he shows himself in what? Burning bush. When Israel comes to the mountain um, to to get the law, when Moses is going to go up, God says, don't come too close because your God is what? A consuming fire. That God is all about fire in the Old Testament, for sure. And the interesting thing here is when fire comes, the fire doesn't consume, but fire actually is part of the actual restoration. That in the the, the Old Testament, God says, don't come too close because I am a consuming fire. Here, God comes upon them with his fire. That they, in fact, will be bearers of that consuming fire. That God himself is with them. Which is important also when we consider the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because if you just stopped and said this mighty wind came and the Holy Spirit like rushed through, we would tend to think that almost that the Holy Spirit was God's errand boy. Right? That God the Father is sitting on his throne. Holy Spirit, go do this. Holy Spirit, go do that that he's somehow lesser than God. But, but the Holy Spirit is of the same substance, equal empowering glory to God. In, in other words, when we see the fire, we are also told that when the Holy Spirit comes, this wind, it is God, very God of very God is among them right now. And the last thing that we see, and it's the one that often is most confusing, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, 
They're filled. They begin to speak in, in other tongues. And the word there is just simply languages. And I think we somehow confuse this. It says, as the Spirit gave them utterance, every now and then I've got to call things out, right? I think that's a horrible translation, the word utterance. I don't know why they used that. Because the word there in Greek is literally speaking forth or, or empowered to speak. In other words, the Holy Spirit came. I'll give you a Tommy Allen translation. The Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit empowered them. As the Spirit gave them the ability to, to preach it. <laughs> they did. It wasn't utterance. Now, there are part, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage about tongues and the Holy Spirit and, and spiritual gifts. That's not what this is about at least. And there's a place to talk about that at some point. But here, the Holy Spirit is coming upon them to give them and to empower them for ministry. And by the way, spoiler alert, every person who ever trusts Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and every person is empowered for ministry. Or we should be. Or if we're empowered for ministry, do we know what ministry we should be doing? All of us are being empowered for ministry one way or another, not just preachers so with all of that said there these these men in this case are empowered to preach and the next question of course is to whom did they preach notice what it says in verse 5 it says now there were dwelling in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all these who are speaking Galileans. So it, it almost seems like an oxymoron there, right? Verse 5, that now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And the question is, which is it? Were they devout Jews or were they, were they from every nation under heaven? And the answer, of course, is both. That we know there was a, 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 that Israel was taken to, to a Syrian exile in 722 and uh, 520 or 540-something, Judah was taken into Israel, into exile, into Babylon, and they were dispersed not only to Assyria and to Babylon, but sort of to every country in the world. There were Rome, Jews who were dispersed to Rome, and Jews who were dispersed to Greece, and Jews who were dispersed to Asiatic places. So they, were, they had been dispersed everywhere. And yet some of them apparently remained faithful, so faithful and so devout, that when the Feast of First Fruits came, they came back to Jerusalem. So hundreds of years later, they're still following Yahweh, and they are still, but they are now Roman, or they are now Greek, or they are now African, we are going to see, or they are now Arabic, or they are now Cretan. There's there all these different nations come together. In fact, it says men, devout Jews um, from every nation under heaven were gathered in one place. Now, if you were God and you were going to jumpstart a movement that was going to cover the face of the earth, can you imagine a better place to do it? Right? So you have, you have Jews who are already devout. They, they, you know they're devout. They just need to be persuaded that Jesus is Messiah. And so someone needs to preach to them. And then when they leave from there, they will be the ones who would go back to the known world and they would preach the gospel in those places. And what are the places? Notice that they would come back for the feast. They would bring money. And I, just, I did want to point out to you just um, the list, right? It says Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Mes people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. In other words, some of the people that were there, first of all, they were from Libya and were from parts of Cyrene. That is Africa. 
And I'm just, as we've been doing this, like I'm, I'm a week or two ahead of you on all of these sermon, on sermons on race, and I'm just amazed at every point how any person could ever read the Bible from a racist point of view. I, I'm always amazed how anyone could justify slavery. Here's the birth of the church, like the v- birth of the visible church. This is where it begins. And God doesn't say, okay, we're going to just take brown people. And I want you to go preach to, to, to black people and white people and Asian people. Or I'm just going to take uh, white people and I want you to go preach to the different races. He brings every race together at the same time. And they're all converted together. They're all empowered together. And they go out to their separate places together. So that's one thing that I think is pretty important to, to keep in mind. And the other thing is notice the reaction that we have here. It says... Um, Book Jews, Proselytes, verse 11, it says, or verse 7, I'm sorry, it says, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So, in some ways, it it should make us laugh, because they, they heard the sound, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in their own language. And so that would have been bewildering, right? It's like, do you hear someone speaking Parthian? Do you hear someone speaking Greek? But what I think is more funny about this, they, they were bewildered that they heard this miraculous thing happen, but they were amazed and astounded that it was happening through Galileans. In other words, if you're Galilean here, forgive me, but apparently Galileans weren't the sharpest tool in the shed. They weren't known for being the, the crispest shirt in the closet. In fact, they had a reputation for being so. And they, they were sort of like the Scottish of the Middle East, apparently. They, they, I can say that. Because of their accents. They were just more guttural. And so you hear, here you have people who are not known for their brilliance, who have very guttural accents, and suddenly from them is flowing this music of the Gospel in every different tongue. And they are amazed at it. And so what happens then? What's going on? Why, what is actually going on? They say, how is it that, that we hear each one of us in our own language? What they're beginning to experience right in that very moment, like in real time, is the reversal of Babel. Remember we looked at the Tower of Babel a, a while back where God came upon humanity because they were, they were all of one accord, they had one language, and they were basically all set themselves against God, right? They were going to make a name for themselves, they were going to make this tower to reach the heavens, and God comes down in judgment to people who are, have one language, one mission, one vision, and they're, they're in one place, and he divides them and judges them and disperses them. And what's happening, happening at Pentecost is that people, all these dispersed people, multiple people from multiple languages are actually coming together now. And instead of being judged and dispersed, they're being saved and unified. Instead of being judged and dispersed, they're being saved and unified. And suddenly, and these people, they're going to go back and start their own churches when you look at the New Testament, one of the things that's convicting to me, at least, is the people leave Pentecost, they, they leave this event, and they are the ones who go out and start churches all over the Near East. They are the ones, like, there, there's no mystery, you know, the scholars say, well, it was a mystery. How did a church start in Rome? Well, maybe people who were at Pentecost went back to Rome and started telling people about Jesus. 
Oftentimes we think, man, we need to hire a church planter, or we need to hire a pastor, or we need another person on staff. The reality is the, the movement of the gospel in the history of the church happens, generally speaking, to happen through people like you. Just average people. You go to work every day, you're trying to raise your kids, you're trying to make it, you're trying to survive COVID, you're trying to do whatever. And yet in the process of all of that, telling their neighbors about Jesus, telling, telling them, let's gather together and let me tell you more. Let me tell you my story. And so that's happening. And they, they can't help but proclaim what they know because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the last thing we'll look at is what did they proclaim? Basically, the thing that they proclaimed was the mighty works of God. Look at verse 11. It says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, when they say the mighty works of God, we actually have an example in, later on in the chapter of ex- specifically and exactly what they heard. Look at verse 22, if you're following along in chapter 2. Peter is speaking. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened in the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he gives all this Old Testament scripture to back what up what he has just said. Look at verse 32. It says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what are the mighty works of God that are being proclaimed at Pentecost? Just this, that this Jesus whom many of you saw, this Jesus lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. You and I are responsible for it. Imagine being in the crowd and, pe- and being one of the people who at some point have been shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter actually saying, this Jesus who you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. God has raised him from the dead. He has put him over all of creation. He is the one who, who will renew all of creation. He is the one who is Lord now of everything. If you were standing there, what would you say? I know what I would say. What do I need to do? <laughs> right? How do I make this right? How do, I, how do I reconcile to this? That's exactly what they say. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter the rest, and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So they they hear this, they're cut to the heart, what shall we do? And Peter gives them this long theological thing, treatise, that no one can understand. What should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Simple as that. Repentance means simply turning from your sins back to God. And baptism here, I think, encompasses the whole idea of putting your faith in Jesus and and casting your lot with him and taking his mark upon you. You see, what happens is the gospel always calls for a decision from us. 
You know, Tim Keller often says, you, you know, you can, you, can, you can love Jesus or you can hate Jesus, but you just can't like him. You just can't hang around him because he's constantly saying, what are you going to do with me? The gospel is always asking us to decide. It's always calling us to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and to be empowered for ministry. And you see, and if we are Christians, um, we ultimately are responsible to proclaim God's mighty deeds to the nation. In, in other words, you know, the, the, what happens is we're responsible to proclaim God's mighty deeds to the nations, and God is responsible to draw in who he wants. We tell people about Jesus, and God pulls people in as he sees fit. It's not up to us. Our job is only to actually proclaim. And the more you consider the gospel, the more you're moved by the gospel, the more you are changed by the gospel, the more you will want to actually proclaim the mighty deeds of God. And at the end of the day, you know, I was, I was thinking through this, this week, who, what kind of people are most successful at proclaiming the mighty deeds of God? In other words, in my life, as I look back, what kinds of people actually have incredible success at proclaiming the mighty deeds of God and seeing their friends and neighbors and co-workers and people coming to know Jesus? And at the end of the day, what I came down to, it all boiled down to this, and the answer is people who try. People who try. In other words, you know, the, in the, people often say from time to time, they'll say, well, that Tommy, he's a gifted evangelist. You know, there's no gift of evangelism in the New Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere because evangelism isn't a gift. Evangelism is something we all are responsible for. And in my experience, people who try, generally speaking, have success from time to time. And you'd be amazed when you try what God can do. Let me close with this story. And it's, it is an absolutely true story um, <laughs> about basically a buffoon trying to speak Spanish who ended up leading three people to Christ. That buffoon, of course, would be me. You know, I became a Christian, and, I, and then I went into the Army for four years. I'm from South Florida, if you don't know that. And in South Florida, it's very helpful if you understand Spanish one way or the other. And so I had a, a little bit of facility with Spanish and got to Florida State. And every, I think it was Wednesday at Florida State, there would be 20, 30,000 people in the student union, right? It's this big, you know, they would sell things, and there would be groups and all these kinds of things. And I would go down on Wednesdays to share the gospel with people. And this one day, I don't know how I happened upon, happened upon this booth, and I started talking to this, this Hispanic woman. She's from Venezuela. Her name was Patty. And I started to talk to her about the gospel. And we were talking, she, and, and, and I was trying to explain to her how Jesus saves her from her sins. And I got to the point of explaining, what do you need to do? You just need to repent. And I didn't know the word. And I looked around me, right, I'm in Florida, and I saw another woman walking by who looked Hispanic. It turns out she was Hispanic, she's Cuban, with her brother, her name is Octavia, and I said, por favor, I said, como se dice to repent? And she looked at me sort of strangely, and she said, arrepentirse. I said, gracias. And I forgot about her. I turned back, and I continued explaining the gospel to Patty. And you know who became a Christian after that exchange? Octavia and her brother. And you know who led Patty to Christ? Octavia and her brother. And they, they started coming to RUF with it. It was the craziest thing. And you know why that happened? Because it wasn't because I'm so wise and because I'm so bold and I'm so smart. I'm an idiot. And all I did was try and tell this person about Jesus and God, this person didn't even know Jesus to help me and they all ended up coming to Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit works. But if we don't try at all, it doesn't happen. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, 
I do pray right now that you would make us a church um, that is zealous to proclaim the mighty works of God to every people, tribe, and tongue. That, that, that regardless of who lives around us, that we would see them as our neighbors. We would see them not just in need of the gospel, but in need of seeing the mighty deeds of God in their life to bring healing to them, to bring hope to them. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen.